And he says this, and if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so that's what he's talking about. He's following that flow. Let's read verse one again. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The title of our message tonight is this, God's plan for expanding his family. May God bless reading his word. You can be seated. In the world of church planting, they say that one way to grow the church is to grow your own family. And so we have accomplished that this year and grew both our church family and our personal family by one little baby girl by the name of Jesse. On January 25th, our family expanded. Now I realize that there are some families who unfortunately are just not able to have children. And that's a very tough thing to deal with and to go through and to sort through. And usually it takes several years to sort through what steps to take. And I'm thankful that with our, our crazy technology that we have today, that there are options like in vitro that somebody might explore to be able to have children or they might decide to adopt. There are, there's all kinds of fatherlessness and parentlessness here in the United States of America and all over the world, orphans all over the place in need of a family to adopt them. And I'm thankful that a lot of Christian families take that under their wing and they decide, well, since God hasn't given me kids, they pray about it, they seek the Lord and determine the Lord wants me to maybe go and adopt some kids or adopt a kid who and bring them into a Christian home where they can hear the gospel and there can be saved where otherwise they might not have had that opportunity. And so I'm very thankful for our adoption system. Pastor Troy Durrell at Tulsa or Eastland Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, he had told us of a story of how they had a couple in their church that after several years they figured out they were not able to have kids. And so they decided, okay, well, I guess the Lord wants us to adopt. And so they went through this process and they decided to adopt two infant twins. I mean, just born, newborn babies. So they adopt these twins, and it was only about a month, month and a half later, they found out that she was pregnant with triplets. And so you're talking about having five babies, going from no kids to having five babies under the age of one in one year. Can you imagine when they're teenagers? I mean, five teenagers at a time, five graduations at a time, maybe five weddings at a time. I mean, that's what we call expanding the family. Well, why do people want to expand their family? Why is it that parents, for the vast majority anyways, desire to have children? Well, there's something 
inborn into them about having children. I mean, after all, that's something that that's one of the commands that God gave Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And so that's kind of in our nature. But from a personal standpoint, uh, one reason is because there's so much love in that marriage. They want to be able to share that love with children. They want to be able to share their experiences with children. They want to be able to uh, pass an inheritance down onto their children, share in the blessings of life with their children. It's because they love them. Well, God loved the children of Israel, loved them, chose them. And he said, I've not chosen you because there's anything good in you. We all know that wasn't true. There's nothing good in them. He said, it's not because of anything you've done. It's not because you're beautiful. It's because I loved you. And so God chose them, but God chose them for a specific purpose. And that purpose was this, redemption. It was to bring redemption, not just to the Jews, but to all the world. You'll read through the Old Testament and you'll find out very quickly that God is a missionary God and that his plan was for the nation of Israel to be his shining light, to display the glory of God and his salvation to the uttermost part of the earth, to be a light to the Gentiles. That was their purpose. And so God uh, loved Israel, but he also loved the Gentiles and wanted somebody from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation to be his people. Why would he do that? I mean, why does he choose Israel to be his people? Why does he choose them to bring redemption to the world so that he might call out of the Gentiles a people for his name? Why is he, why is he concerned with expanding his family? Well, it's because he's got a lot of love. And he wants to share his love with all the world. He wants to. But when man sinned, it broke that relationship because he's so holy that sin cannot dwell in his presence. But rather than letting man just wander off and, and go off in his sin and ultimately face the finality of the punishment of sin, namely eternal, eternity in hell, God stepped into time and he became a baby and he lived a perfect life and he went to the cross to pay the price for our redemption so he could bring us back to himself. That's how much love he has. He was willing to pay any price and go to any cost to redeem us back to him, to reconcile our relationship. Why? He loves us. Not only does he love us, he wants to share his blessings with us. He promised untold blessings to Abraham and his children. And he's promised untold blessings to the Gentiles as well as the Jewish people and to all the world. He wants to bless them with wonderful things in this life, yes, but he also wants to bless them with eternal life and with a mansion in the sky and with streets of gold that they can walk. And he wants to bless them with his presence. Here's the question. How does God go about it? How does God go about expanding his family beyond the Jews, beyond the, the borders of Israel to reach to the Gentiles? How does he do that? Well, the Judaizers that had swept through the churches of Galatia would say this. Here's God's plan for expanding his family to the Gentiles, bringing the Gentiles to become Jews, bringing them into Judaism. 
circumcising them, compelling them to follow the Old Testament law, bringing them back to the old covenant. That was what they said. That if you want to be a part of God's family, then you've got to be in God's family and the law and the covenant is how it happens. Well, Paul is combating that in this letter. And we've seen it time and time again because the Galatian believers were being deceived into thinking this way. And so he writes to them to show them that, yes, God has a plan to expand his family to the Gentiles, but it's not through the works of the law. It's not through circumcision. It's not through the sacrifices and keeping the holy days. Well, if it wasn't by the works of the law, what is God's plan? Because you may be in here tonight and you may be just thinking, how did I become a child of God? Or you might be thinking, how do I become a child of God? How do I, how do I become a son that can experience this redemption? A son that can experience all these blessings and this love that God wants to share with me. And you might even be thinking this. I know that Jesus got me into his family. But how do I stay in his family what is God's plan to expand his family to include even you? What Paul gives in chapter 4, he opens up by giving this example of the way that a child in their day and time was under these tutors and these governors until the appointed time of the father. Look with me in verse 1. He says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. What is this talking about? Well, he's giving this earthly example here where you have a father who is wealthy, has a massive inheritance to leave to his child, but his heir is just that, a child. Okay, this particular word translated child is a word that means an infant child, a young child, perhaps toddler age. Now, obviously, if a kid is three or four years old or that age screaming away right now, that father is not about to lay that whole entire estate into that child's hands. He's not ready. He doesn't know how to handle it. He doesn't know what to do with it. He couldn't do anything with it. And so what that means is that when he is a child, he differeth nothing from a servant. Okay, so you've got a child in the household and then you've got a servant in the household. Just like that servant has no claim, no stake in the estate, so the child is in the same situation right now. He can't grab it. He can't have it. It's not his yet. It's promised to him, but it's not yet his. And it says, though he be Lord over all, of all. That's what it's talking about. It's promised to him. He's the owner. That's the idea of the Lord there. He's the master. He's the owner of that estate, of that inheritance to come, but not at this time. Why? Because he's a child. Okay, so what happens then? Verse 2. But is under tutors and governors. This word tutor is a word that means to be a steward or a manager. You would think of it somebody like a foreman on a job site, that they are superintending a specific area. And that's the idea. These tutors, they would be uh, superintendents over these children. They would often, the idea, I guess, would be more like a guardian, somebody who's a legal guardian for this child. And so while he's still uh, under the, the home of his father, 
His father would assign, just like with the schoolmaster, his father would assign this tutor, this uh, manager, this guardian to be over the specific heir. Okay, Not all the children. He was assigned just to the heir of the estate. And so that's what the tutor was. And then you have this word governor. Now the word governor is a little bit of a different word. It literally means law of the house. Okay, law of the house. It's it's oikonomos. And so oikos would be house, nomos would be law. And so you've got the idea of the, the law of the house. That's what his responsibility was. He enforced what the rule was. What is this talking about? Well, the way that maybe we ought to think about it is more like this. A trustee. He was a trustee. Fitting into this context, when you're talking about the heir, you're talking about how the child can't yet have the inheritance. It's not in his hands, even though it's promised him, it's not yet in his hands. This governor would function as a trustee over an estate, that the estate was put into a trust, and he was the one who managed the household, managed the land, the inheritance. He managed all of that, okay? Let me just illustrate it this way. The Denver Broncos are preparing to sell the team, okay? And so they're working on that right now. There's auctions. I saw that um, Kaiser settled, and so there's no more right of first refusal, so the team is ready to be sold. Well, before this happened, you had Pat Bolin, the owner, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and just realized he could not run the team anymore, he went ahead and, and had all, well, he had already established his will. I mean, we're talking about a four, they're talking about possibly $5 billion organization. That's a lot to hand over to some perhaps young children. <laughs> they're not children, of course. They're, they're, their youngest is in her 30s, but I'm in my 30s and I'm thinking four and a half billion dollars would be a lot for me to handle. And so what he decided was he didn't want, and pardon the pun, but he didn't want the team to be fumbled and, uh, and, and end up messed up and destroying everything that he had built over the last several decades. And so what he did was he set up the team to where it would be put into a trust. There were three trustees who were set to manage over the team and they were to manage over that team until one of the kids met the qualifications to be able to run the organization. Now, that did not happen. And because that did not happen, they're having to sell the team. So the illustration breaks down a little bit here, but the idea that we're talking about is the trust. It's put into somebody else's hands but it wasn't intended to be there forever. It was only put into their hands until, until the kids could manage it, until the kids could understand it, until the kids were qualified to be able to have that team. And so that's the idea of what Paul's talking about here, that you've got this young child who can't manage the estate. They can't take the inheritance to themselves now, and so this inheritance is going to be left in the hands of a trustee, somebody who's going to manage it, somebody who's going to be in charge of it. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to apply this example to the way that a person is under the supervision of the law until a specific time appointed of the father. Because it says in verse 2, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. And so what that tells us is this, that the child was not always meant, and his inheritance was not always meant to be under the trustee. He wasn't always supposed to be under the tutor and under the governor. No, there was a time appointed, normally around 25 years old, when the father would say, okay, he doesn't need the 
tutor. He doesn't need the governor. Now you can pass the inheritance over to him. And so now he's going to apply this in verse three. He says, even so we, when we were children, there it is again, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And so you have this idea of the young child, same word, that infant child, unable to grasp certain things, unable to manage it, unable to understand. And so what he's talking about here is prior to faith, prior to faith in Christ, we were children. We were in the same situation as that heir. There was an inheritance promised. Hey, listen, the promise of God of salvation and redemption and righteousness and eternal life. Hey, that went out to all the world from the beginning of time. From the time that Adam and Eve first sinned, God's plan of redemption was set forth in motion. And that promise went to everybody. But we were children. We didn't understand it. We couldn't grasp it. We couldn't have it yet. And so he says that we were children, and in that time we were under bondage. We were bound, okay? And so it's, it's talking about how we were in, un, under this specific bondage. We were at, like the children, had no say, no control over the inheritance of God, in spite of the fact that it had already been uh, promised. So he says we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, before faith in Christ, when we were children, in the same way that the heir was under the guardianship of the trustee and of the, the tutor, we were bound under the guardianship of the elements of the world. What's it talking about the elements of the world? Well, it's a very common way of them basically saying the basics of life, the basic principles of life. Well, what is this referring to? We might say it this way, the ABCs. That's how we would say it, the ABCs. Of, of life. Now, my daughter Jenna is finishing up kindergarten, her first year of school. You know, she's not learning calculus, right? She's not learning trigonometry. She's not learning chemistry, physics, none of those things. You know what she's learning? Well, she learned how to read and write the alphabet. Of course, I already knew how to count some, but now she's learned how to count into the hundreds and even the thousands. She's learning basic addition and subtraction. She's learning the basics of phonics and reading. And so she's learning the basics of U.S. history about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson. And so what she's learning is really the basics of life right now. But she's not supposed to stay in the basics of life for all her life, is she? <laughs> She's eventually supposed to learn how to read a little bit quicker, how to write a little bit better. Hopefully she'll move on to cursive if schools are even still doing cursive anymore. Uh, she'll move on to biology. She'll move on to chemistry and those kind of things. But right now, the basics is all she can handle. It's all that, that her body is designed to take. Her mind is designed to take at this time. But there's an appointed time when her knowledge will expand. Our knowledge will expand. Well, what Paul is saying here is that prior to faith, when we were children, we were bound to the basic principles of life. Now, what's he talking about here? The elements of the world. There's a lot of discussion about it, but I think the context tells us we know, first of all, that's talking about the law. That's the major context that's going on here. But you also have, if you were to look at verse 9, he says, 
Uh, but now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? And then what does he say? Ye observe days and months and times and years. And so what he's specifically talking about there is, is now that you know God, why would you go back to the law that's going to take you back into that bondage, this bondage that he's talking about here? And so we know he's talking about the law specifically to the Jews, but I think he's also talking about the Gentiles, because if you look at verse 8, he says, How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. What that means is that's their polytheistic pagan system of worship. And so what he's saying is, is that prior to faith, you were held in bondage, the Jews by the law and the old system of government and the Gentiles in their pagan system of religion. And so you were held in bondage under something else. Now, what was the purpose of those? He's already shown that the purpose of the law was to bring them unto Christ, to show them they need a savior. I can't keep the law. And the purpose of the, the paganism and the polytheism was to show them the emptiness of it, the vanity of it, that these are not real. They can't do for you what the God of Israel can do for you. And so what he's saying is that, that you were, uh, in verse number, number three, he says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, that there was a time we were under something else. We were bound to something else. Bound to what? The law and paganism. But God's intent was not for it to always be that way. It wasn't always for the Gentiles to be in darkness. It wasn't always for the Jews to be under bondage to the law because he says in verse 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Well, why did he do that for? I mean, what he's talking about here, I mean, you follow, stick with the analogy here. He's saying that the child, the heir, is only going to be under those tutors. He's only going to be under those governors for so long until he's at the point at which the father says, now's the time. And then the inheritance comes. Well, what was the primary inheritance that God has been taught or that Paul has been talking about with Abraham? It was the seed, the seed, which was Christ, as it says in chapter three. And so we're talking about Christ being the inheritance. So what he's saying now is that you were under the governorship of the law and your paganism until the appointed time when the fullness of time was come, when the time was up that God said, now's the time to send the seed. Now's the time to send the Savior. He was made, here it refers you back to Genesis chapter 3, of a woman. <laughs> There's the seed of the woman. And he was made under the law. Why? To fulfill it. He was made under the law. Why? It says in verse number five, to redeem them that were under the law. Well, who was under the law? The Jews, but in reality, every one of us were condemned under the Old Testament law. And so this word redeem, it literally means to buy out. And in this context, talking about uh, slavery and, and bondage and those kind of things, what it would mean is that if a person had to uh, sell themselves as a slave, to a master or an owner to pay off a debt, they would be that person's slave, okay? So at times, the majority of the time in that day, it was a willful thing. Now what the masters did with them wasn't always right, but there was a way out of this situation. 
And that was that a friend or a family member could come down to the slave market and they could pay off your debt for you to the owner, thus buying you back out of slavery and purchasing your freedom. That's what this is talking about. That Jesus was made of a woman and he was made under the law to redeem them, to buy them. Here's what that means. He walked into the slave market by which, under which all of us were bound, the slave market of the law. He walked in there and he paid what was necessary. Amen. You know what that means? He paid the dues of the law. He fulfilled its demands, including death for sin. And when he died sacrificially and willfully upon the cross, he paid the price for every sin for which we were condemned under the law and it set us free from the curse of the law. How? Because he became a curse for us. How? By the way that he was hung to a tree. For cursed is everyone that's written on the tree. You see how this is all tying together now? He's, this is really coming to the end of this specific argument that's been going on since the beginning of chapter 3. And so he's, he's really tying all of this together and he's saying that he came to fulfill the demands of the law in order to purchase us out of the law. You know what that means? He, he brought us out of bondage. Amen. He bought us out and he made us free and he gave us liberty. How? Through his death. Why would he do this? Look at the end of verse 5. That we might receive the adoption of sons. The adoption of sons. This word adoption is a word that means to place as a son. Or to bestow sonship on someone who naturally doesn't belong. And so it means that those who, those who did not belong in his family, those who were outside of his family, are now brought into his family. What's this talking about? The way that the Jews were the family of God. They were the ones that God had chosen, the ones that God had called out in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob for this purpose of redemption. And what he's telling us here is that God does have a plan to bring the Gentiles into the family of God. But that plan is not by the works of the law like the Judaizers are saying. His plan is not to bring them in through circumcision. It's not to bring them in through the old covenant. No, it was that through the new covenant, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that all the Gentiles who had placed their faith in Christ and his payment for redemption, they would be adopted. They who had no place. They who, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, were alienated by their wicked works and enemies of God. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death that he might present them to him a glorious church, not having spot or ring. I think I'm mixing up like five different books of the Bible right now, but they all fit together and it's great. But what, what this is telling us is that God has a plan for expanding his family and it's not by works, it's not by the law, it's by faith in Christ. Look at the results of this in verse 6. And because ye are sons, the Galatians, let's think about who's reading this. The Galatians who were not Jews, who were not sons, who have been fed this garbage that if you want to become a son of God, then you've got to become a Jew. They, they've been fed this and he's now saying, no, if you have Christ, you're already sons. You know what that means? You're already 
heirs as well. And so he says, because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This word Abba is the word Daddy. Daddy. The way that a child would refer to his dad. You know, there are times my son is an absolute monster. I mean, all over the place, not doing anything you tell him to do, anything you want him to do. He's destructive. His room's a mess all the time. And then there are times I'm sitting on the couch and he comes and he snuggles up next to me and he looks me in the eyes and he says, I love you, daddy. That's precious. That's a closeness that none of y'all will ever have with me. That's for sure. (laughs) That's a closeness that can only come in a child-father relationship. And here's what he's saying, that when you got saved, when you trusted Christ by faith, he sent forth the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that belonged to Christ. We're talking about the third part of the Trinity. He sent you the Spirit, and that Spirit bears witness in your heart to say this, I'm such a child of God that I can come to God and call him my daddy. That I can come to him and I can say, Daddy, I love you. You've been so good to me, so kind to me, so gracious. You've forgiven me. You've redeemed me. You've changed my life. You've cleaned me up. You've made all the difference in the world. That is a closeness that cannot come by the law. It cannot come by circumcision. It cannot come by dietary laws and holy days. It can only come, why? Because Christ bought you out of the slave market and made you a son of God. And now you're there. Look at verse 7. Wherefore, here's the conclusion. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. How? Through Christ. An heir of God through Christ. See, because you have this kind of relationship with God, the time has come when you're no longer under that tutor, you're no longer under that governor. No, the time has already come where if you've placed your faith in Christ, he has made you a son. And that means all the inheritance belongs to you and the spirit bears witness in your heart that it does. Well, how does this adoption take place? How do the Galatians become children and heirs of God? I mean, what was God's plan here? Was it through the works of the law? Was it through holy days? Was it through circumcision and ceremonies and sacrifices? How, was, how did this happen? Well, God planned to enable the Gentiles to become the heirs of God with Israel through the adoption that was provided by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That was how God did it. That was his plan to expand his family and his plan to expand his family includes you. (laughs) It includes you. Listen, adoption into God's family is not something you can achieve. It's not your performance according to the law that earns you adoption with God. It's not your baptism. It's not your church membership. It's not growing up in church. It's not mom's faith and dad's faith and grandma's faith or my brother's faith. There's no amount of money that you can give. There's no price that you can pay to be redeemed. Adoption cannot be achieved. It must be received. That's the only way. The only way to receive adoption into God's family is through faith in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. He came. And he already fulfilled the demands of the law, which you could not. 
And he gave his life on the cross of Calvary to make that atonement for your sin, to bring you back at one with God. That's the idea of atonement, at one with God. He did that already. And so all that's left for you to do is to trust in what he's already done. It's, it's just to trust in him. And when you trust in him, you're adopted into his family. He gives you the Holy Spirit that bears witness in your heart so that you too can cry, Abba, Father, before God. And he makes you an heir of God through sonship. And I want to tell you this tonight, that what has been secured by Christ cannot be more secured by your works. There are some who say that keeping the law will get you closer to God. There are some who say that it'll give you a greater blessing, that it'll give you a greater place in heaven. But what Jesus has done, what Jesus has done enables you to crawl up into the lap of God and say, Daddy, I love you. And to bring your greatest fears to him and your, your strongest difficulties and your fiercest moments and the deepest struggles in your life, you can bring those to your Father and you can be close to Him and He will wrap His arms around you. That's a closeness that nothing you can do can get you. What Christ has already given you in the closeness and the fellowship with God is something that you can't get anything greater by the law. It won't do it. This passage says that you're a child of God through Christ. That you already are an heir of God. That means that everything He has is promised to you. So tell me, what else can keeping the law earn you in heaven? What, a, what closer place with God? What better standing with God? What greater acceptance with God? Can your good works get you when Christ has already given you everything? That's what he's talking about here. It's already done. There's no reason to keep going after it. Through Christ, the very fact that you get to go to heaven and spend eternity with him in the presence of God, that's a better place than you could ever imagine. And there's nothing the law can provide you with that Christ has not already given you through faith. But what about pleasing God in this life? I mean, if I don't keep the law, I mean, we know the, the Bible says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. It says, walk worthy of God unto all pleasing. And so we're supposed to please God in this life. That's even what the Apostle Paul would say. Well, how do we do that? How, how do we please God? Well, you can't please God more by keeping the works of the law. <laughs> you know why? Because you can't keep the works of the law. See, we're going to see in chapter 5 and verse 3 that if you decide to be circumcised and you decide to go full-on convert to Judaism, then you're a debtor to keep the entire law. And James chapter 2, verse 10 teaches us that if you break one part of the law, you are guilty of it all. You know what that means? It's impossible to please God by the works of the law. And that's exactly the way God designed it to be. So that pleasing Him would be through Christ by faith. So how do I please God? It's not by keeping the works of the law. It's by letting Christ and the spirit that he has given you to be the new governor of your life. Don't go back to the old governor when he's given you a governor that's way better in the Holy Spirit. Well, how do I, how do I please God at work? Well, when you find out that something's going on that's shady, don't be a part of it. <laughs> Have nothing to do with that. Or when you walk up on your coworkers and they're starting to talk uh, vulgarly and they're talking about nasty things, then the Spirit of God speaks to you and says, you ought not be part of this conversation, then you walk away. How do I please God at home? Well, 
when you come home from a hard day and you take out all your frustrations out on your spouse or on your sister or on your brother or your parents, when you, when you take out all your frustrations on them and you know there's really not a problem with them, it's a problem with what happened with somebody else at work and the Spirit of God says, hey, that wasn't their fault. Repent, apologize, and get it right. What if somebody's treated me unfairly at home? What if somebody stole some of my clothes? Or what if somebody came home and went off at me about all the difficulties at work and they blamed it all on me? And the Spirit of God says, hasn't God forgiven you? Forgive. But what if they didn't apologize? Forgive. Don't let that bitterness well up within you. Don't let it hurt your spiritual life. No, forgive. Show the same forgiveness that Jesus showed. That is letting the Spirit and Christ live in and through you. How do I please God at church? Well, when you're trying to share with somebody your quote-unquote prayer request, and that prayer request begins to turn into gossip, and the Spirit of God says you ought to stop that right now, well, yeah. stop <laughs> and apologize and get it right. When the Spirit of God comes to you and says, you ought to join this church, then just join the church without whatever it takes. Just do what the Spirit of God's leading you to do. When the Spirit of God says, commit this amount of faith promised missions, then commit that amount of faith promised missions. The Spirit of God says, give your tithe, then give your tithe. The Spirit of God says, serve in the music ministry or serve in the nursery ministry. Lord knows we're going to need some of that. Uh, serve in this ministry or this ministry, then just say, okay, God, what do I do? And just go do it. Have a conversation. <laughs> or when God calls you into the ministry, surrender. Amen. Spirit of God speaks to your heart about giving somebody an invite to Easter service on Sunday. Just do it. See, that's the new governor. It's amazing. You don't have to open a book to figure out what you're supposed to do. It's written on your heart the way God said it would be through the Holy Spirit of God who speaks to you in the moment. And if you're so busy trying to keep this Old Testament law that was intended by God to pass off the scene, you won't be able to listen to the Spirit of God moving in your daily life. And that's what Paul was concerned about with them. You don't please God by law keeping. You please God by following the Spirit and letting Christ live in and through you. God's plan is to expand his family. How does, not by the works of the law. It's by faith. And so if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, then you're still under that old tutor. You're still under that old governor. You're still under that old schoolmaster. But God doesn't want you to stay there forever. No, he sent his son to go into that situation and to buy you out of it if you'll just come to him and trust him by faith. He'll do it. Some of you may be thinking, well, I've got to keep this list of rules and regulations if I'm going to please God. You think I've got to dress a certain way. I've got to act a certain way. I've got to talk a certain way. I've got to sing at a certain volume. I've got to read X amount of chapters. I've got to spend X amount of time in prayer. And you're just going through regulation after regulation after regulation. Rather than just, and listen, Bible reading is great and prayer time is great. But you know what's greater? If instead of saying, I've got to read this amount of chapters, you just kind of sit there until Jesus says, here you go. Now speak to me. <laughs> to follow the Spirit even in our Bible reading, to let Him lead the way instead of 
I'm not against Bible reading plans. I have those and, and I use them and they're great and they're helpful to keep you on track. But the Bible reading plan shouldn't overrule when the Spirit speaks to your heart and says, you need to stay a little longer. You need to cry, Abba, a little longer. See, we won't come to a place of pleasing God by trying to follow man's traditions, trying to follow man's laws and rules and regulations. It'll be by following the Holy Spirit of Christ, which is in you. God has a plan of expanding his family to Boulder. He wants more people here to be saved. He wants these pews to be filled. As a church planter, you can just envision 100 people filling up these pews. It's awesome. That's what God wants too. But it's not going to happen by us going to people's door and saying, you got to follow all these sacrifices and all these dietary laws and you got to follow all these ceremonies and all these feasts and it's not going to come by, by you coming with your list of rules and regulations and saying, well, you got to wear a skirt you got to wear a tie. you got to get all your piercings out of your face. you gotta, you got to go get your ink removed from your tattoo, and then you can come to church. That's not salvation. Jesus Christ came, and he went into the slave market to purchase them out just as they were. And what happens is he gives them the Holy Spirit of God, and that Holy Spirit begins to work in their life and he begins to cleanse them and wash them and change them. And he'll, he'll change the way they look. He'll change the way they think. He'll change the lifestyle they live. He'll change all those things. But if we go to this community and we say, change and God will accept you, that's never going to happen. In fact, that's nowhere in God's plan. God's plan is this. Through the redemptive work of Christ, I want to take people who never, ever thought for a million of years they would belong in this place. And I'm going to put them in that seat. And I'm going to put them in that seat and this seat. And I'm going to make them a part of my family, not through law, but through adoption. And that adoption was purchased at Calvary. So church, we've got Easter invites out there. We've got gospel tracts that say the message of the cross. That's what people desperately need in Boulder. And the message of the cross is what has the power of God to bring people to salvation, the Jew first and also the Greek. So as God wants to expand his family, we have his plan. It's not by law. It's by faith in Christ. So let's live that life first of all and not try to earn greater acceptance with God and not try to earn a better place with God. We're wasting our time trying to earn things that Jesus already gave us and did for us rather by listening to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us day by day, moment by moment, decision by decision. We follow him and let's take him to our city so we can see him do it in other people's lives too. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the salvation that's been purchased for us by our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that when we didn't belong, you brought us to the place where we did belong. 
when we didn't qualify, you made us qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, as Paul put it in Colossians. I'm thankful for the work that Christ did in our hearts. And I pray if there's anyone tuning in right now that's never trusted Christ as their Savior, I pray that tonight would be the night that they would come to Him by faith and faith alone and receive the adoption through Christ. I pray if there's anyone that's been wearing themselves out, trying to work themselves into favor with you, help them to realize that in Christ they have all the favor they'll ever need. Help them to see that they can please you by simply letting the Spirit live through them. I know there are times we don't listen. There are times we don't respond, and those are the times we're not pleasing you. But if we will listen, and if we will respond, then we can be pleasing to you. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to reach our community for Christ. Help us everywhere we go to let Christ and the Spirit live in us, to be that testimony, first of all, that there is a living Savior and He lives within me. And I pray you'd help us to take the gospel to these people who need it so dearly. I love you, Lord, and I thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.